Welcome to Watershed's February podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and head of programme here at Watershed. I'm delighted to be joined by Phil Johnson, who is programmer of contemporary music at St George's in Bristol, which is a venue that does classical and contemporary music. We're working in partnership this month on a programme called Filmic, which is exploring the creative intersections between the worlds of film and music. And this will be running at Watershed in St George's over February and March. But Phil, if I could just ask you first, where did the filmic idea come from? Well, I think it came from the idea that um, St George's has shown a number of films in the past with music. Watershed has done a number of music events. And that you and I have talked for quite a long time about possible collaborations and extending the things we have done. Bristol is a city has got a reputation, deservedly, uh, for film plus music or music plus film events, and you know a kind of pedigree that goes through the BBC Natural History Unit, the music of the Bristol sound artists, such as Massive Attack, Porter's Head and Tricky, Ronnie Size even, the development of a kind of mode of listening within the crossover of dance and pop music of um, styles of music that seem to be atmospheric and moody, that seem to be designed to evoke particular feelings within the, the listener, rather than to be apprehended as, as pure songs or whatever. So there's all that. I think the intention was to try and do a festival of film and music that was more than just the film and the, the, you know, the original soundtrack played live, but, but could investigate music and film in as wide a, a way as possible, could bring in anything really that seemed a good idea. And the idea of, of filmic is, a, is an adjective that we use, we describe you know, all kinds of things as filmic, is that the notion of what suits the film or, the, or what comes from the film soundtrack is filtered through to everyday life now. It's not something that we, we have to consider only in the context of the cinema. We could do a filmic festival that didn't show a film at all, in a way, yeah. but it was, you know, it consisted entirely of uh, of music that might be variously inspired or, or, or related to film. Because mm. from my side, in doing the the cinema here and some of the projects that I've been involved in the past couple of years, has really, for me, brought to light the creative relationship between musicians and directors. We did the Bernard Herrmann season last year to mark his centenary. And it really struck me there how Hitchcock's films relied on Herman's music. And the kind of Herman's music relies on Hitchcock's mm. films. Mm. It's difficult to separate them out. But also in, as you say, like Bristol-based musicians, um, as part of that Herman season, we had Adrian Utley from Portishead talking about Herman's score to Taxi Driver. And you, you realise how cinema informed his practice as a mm. musician. Mm. So he talks about the French connection, the Epcris file. Mm. And when you hear those scores, you, you can see the connection into the kind of sound that Porter's Head, for example, were, mm, uh, were, yeah. were working with, which has that, as you say, has that filmic quality to it. Well, you can go further than that. You can say that the primary kind of structural influence on music has been film in the 20th century. You, know, you can go from Prokofiev scores to Eisenstein films. The very fact of cutting, of having to cut film to music, and you could even look at it the, the other way around, has meant that the notion of the cut or the edit became a structural device for composers. Mm -hmm. And we could look at, you know, kind of almost all serious music of the 20th century. And we could see the gradual influence of the cinema in the way that music is composed. But today, I mean, we're looking at, you know, the whole influence of cinema and film music 
on pop music. So we've got another kind of, I don't know, Fats Waller, the jazz pianist, began accompanying silent films on the organ in a cinema in, mm. in Harlem or whatever. I mean, you can't really consider the development of music without considering the development of cinema. And with something like jazz, uh, jazz and cinema are perfectly intertwined from their birth. You know, they're both kind of 1895 onwards and developed together. Then the whole tradition of contemporary pop, stroke, rock, stroke, whatever music that's developed over the last kind of 40, 50 years, I think you see film is becoming even more important, becoming as important as any uh, kind of stylistic influence from music. It's funny you say about jazz because I would have thought that film imposes a structure on the, the music Whereas jazz, sort of by its nature, being, you know, improvisatory or, you know, moving off in whatever direction at the time is happening in the performance, that those two things would sort of clash. That's a really good point. I think you've got a tension between the two, haven't you? The improvisation supposedly follows no particular pattern. Mm. But I think we know from numerous examples that it kind of does, that the training of the musician, the context of the performance, the training of the audience and being able to distinguish from one kind of music from another determines the extent of improvisation in a piece. And we can also link you know, free improvisation in music to the free cinema movement, for example, mm. to the use of the extended take in cinema and with the development of an underground cinema through anthology film archives in New York and, and you know, mm. Kenneth Anger, all, all kinds of people. And, and also, you know, I mean, as I said that, of course, you know, some of the kind of most iconic scores, uh, Miles Davis, Lift to the Scaffold. Yeah. You know, Miles Davis is in a number of, of film scores, Dingo, uh, The Hotspot. Yeah. Um, you know, his, his music's been used very effectively. The focus for this year's uh, filmic is two key uh, composers, conductors, Morricone and Michel Legrand. Mm. What is it for you about their work that's, that stands out? Well, they're perhaps the two most kind of iconic film composers, or certainly Morricone would be the most influential, the most well-known perhaps film mm. composer after the death of Bernard Herrmann, mm. that we have in the Legrand composer of you know over 200 soundtracks. How many has Morricone done? Does anyone know? I don't, I don't, I don't, think, it's ever, I don't think it's ever been calculated. <laughs> I mean, there's one in the morning and another, another in the afternoon. I think it would be more than we could imagine. Yeah. yeah. So they're big names and they're people who represent the film composer. So Filmic this year has a focus on Morricone and Michel Legrand. Michel Legrand, of course, will be with us in person, both for a conversation with the event at Watershed and that evening a, a concert at St George's. Morricone won't be with us in person, but he'll be there in, in spirit. Very the much in spirit. Of his, uh, yeah. Two performances of his music, as well as Christopher Frehling's programme of his films and a lecture for a few guitars more. So that's this year's Filmic, but the idea is that Filmic can, can kind of encompass anything really. So this year we've got a concentration on those two directors and a couple of other events, both related and, and uh, uh, unrelated. I think having set out a stall in the first year, we can then move on and, and do something different next. So in general, the, the music is done in response to the film. And I think there are interesting examples about that that you could talk about, you know, famously, Ry Cooder with Paris, Texas. sat down and watched the film and then did the music in a direct response to that.
a great quote which says that he says I watched the film and it all sounded E flat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this obviously informed the landscape, the musical landscape that could have created. Similarly, Neil Young with Dead Man, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, yeah. uh, and watched the film, and then there was a so so there's a sense of these people kind of responding to the images and making the music accordingly. One of the screenings that we're doing is Polly Harvey's um, Let England Shake, mm. the, her, her new album. She's got a filmmaker, Seamus Murphy, that's uh, made images in response to the music, mm. so it's kind of coming round um, the other way. And, and a really um, fantastic series of films. So he's made a series of short films in relation to each of the songs. So in, in effect, as part of film, we're going to be screening the album, mm. which I thought was a kind of nice inversion, as it were, because the film's kind of always leading with music, sort of seeming to come in response, whereas this is the, the images being produced in response to the music. Yeah, and it could be the other way around. The, the myth, if you like, it's, it, it's not the, uh, necessarily the, the truth, but the story behind Miles Davis's score for uh, Louis Miles' first film, Lift of the Scaffold, is that Miles simply projected the completed film on a bedsheet in the studio and Miles Davis and his musicians improvised mm. to it that Miles didn't know what he was going to do. It turns out that it's not entirely true that there were two recording sessions rather than one and that Miles Davis actually went so far as to ask Miles' producer to provide him with a piano in the dressing room for a couple of concerts he was doing around that time mm. so he could work on the score. You could certainly commission a, a film to, to a score, couldn't you? Yeah. Mm. Well, it's an, it's an interesting... Uh, well, it, Walt Disney's Fantasia would, would, yeah. would, in a way, be the progenitor yeah. of that kind of yeah. approach. It is also the idea that the music's suggesting the images, mm. um, you know, coming the, the other way. There's that great quote, for, oh, unless I'm making it up, from Herman, when asked about Vertigo. Uh, when he saw the film, it's like, well, yeah, this film's going to need quite a quite lot of music because he didn't have a clue what it was about, yeah. Well, what, what I love about finding out more about Herman was he was making the meaning along with Hitchcock. Mm. It wasn't that one thing had primacy over the other. It it was very much that the meaning of the thing that you sat and watched was coming from your eyes and your ears. Mm. And his view was, which is of course is probably why I fell out with Hitchcock, <laughs> was that um, it, it, that was creating as much of the meaning as, as Hitchcock's uh, images. Mm. What's great about film, I, I think, is also giving the musicians the recognition and the composers mm, and, the, and the musicians um, the recognition. What we have over the next two months at Watershed and it's at George's is a series of um, spaghetti western films, as you mentioned, that are um, scored by Morricone but curated by uh, Sir Christopher Frayling, expert on Sergio Leone and spaghetti westerns. And he's going to be giving a talk at the end of February. Also at Watershed is, as I said, the screening of the album uh, Let England Shake. And two events at St George's live, the Spaghetti Western Orchestra. Yeah. And also the, the greatness of the magnificence. Yeah, there's a, a double bill that uh, we've commissioned called Rota Stroke Morricone. And the first half is the jazz pianist and composer John Law, who's doing a, um, a specially commissioned programme of arrangements of Nino Rota film themes, mainly from his. Fellini films such as La Dolce Vita. And then in the second half is um, yeah, the greatness of the magnificence is a collective of Paris and Bristol musicians led by Jesse Vernon or Jesse Morningstar as he's sometimes known. And they're, they're presenting uh, Looking for Enyo, which is a, 
an experimental, evocative kind of summoning up of the spirit of Ennio Morricone through a collage of themes from numerous different films interspersed with video projection footage from the films, lights, costumes, the lot. Mm. One of the points about having the focus on Ennio Morricone and Michel Legrand is that they're two absolutely consummate film music professionals. They've each composed over 200 soundtracks. In Morricone's case, there's possibly 500. They've worked on everything, on every kind of genre. They have no preciousness in their approach to their work. They're both composers independently of the cinema. They've had their works performed by symphony orchestras uh, across the world, but they've never been too proud to work for any kind of film. So they're really, really interesting to have together in this festival. Uh, there's a focus on Morricone's work for the Western, which is inevitable. We, we, we could equally, in another Morricone festival, do Battle of Algiers, you know, sword and sandals kind of films that he began his career with. And with Legrand, I mean, we could do his Jean-Luc Godard films. He entered the kind of absolute mainstream of American music for films with uh, The Thomas Crown Affair, mm. which is an incredible score, but also a score that's remarkably similar to scores of the same time by Quincy Jones, for example, mm. a figure from a completely different cultural background, uh, although I'm sure they must have known each other because Jones spent time in Paris in the 50s. But The Thomas Crown Affair is a kind of score that uses the new vocabulary of the film soundtrack. Lots of clacking percussion instruments, uh, string glissandos, effects that sound electronic but probably aren't, or, or, or using the, the kind of steam orchestra. Combined, of course, with the most famous film song of, uh, of them all, The Windmills of, you, of Your Mind, sung by Noel Harrison, I believe. The effects in Morricone scores derive as much from cheapness, from trying to find economic alternatives to having a large-scale orchestra. So creativity comes from necessity as much as anything. And I think it's that. Uh, I know Adrian Utley from Portishead said this to me with respect to Roy Budd's score for Get Carter, that it had to be really creative because the budget was so tiny. It was about 300 quid or something like that. And that, that became the mother of invention, that Roy Budd experimented with the stressing the sound of various keyboards with again, string glissandos from the bassist, tablas played by the drummer, to create something that, uh, that sounded like uh, nothing that had ever been done before. It was made to fit a very vague notion of what was required on the soundtrack by the director, Mike Hodges, who really didn't know, just went with them. What's extraordinary, you know, as you're talking about all those examples, you know, whether it's, it's Morricone's, you know, say, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which is probably one of the most iconic um, scores, or the Legrand Storm's Crown Affair, Get Carter, Roy Bud, is when I think about those, the editing and the music, you can really get a sense that the film's been edited to the dynamic of the music and all of those. I mean, I'd like to find out more, but you get the sense that the music's providing some kind of inspiration in terms of the space that it creates for the edit and for the shot. Completely, and, and they raise an interesting aspect that's very rarely um, focused upon, which is film music not as a particular theme, but as a little sting, a little kind of segment of a few seconds that's used to elide one scene from another or, or to connect something. The Thomas Crown Affair is, is full of that, little kind of segments of just a few seconds long. And in uh, Get Carter, the director, Mike Hodges, told me that he really liked the theme that Roy Bird had written, which is played when uh, 
Michael Caine, who plays Jack Carter, is travelling up to Newcastle on the railway. And he said buried in the theme was this little kind of piece that he asked Roy Budd to extrapolate into a separate little tune or a number of separate little tunes on the vibraphone. And he then inserted those at various pieces in the film. So there, it's difficult to say which comes first in, in a way. It's, it's the, the soundtrack that's influencing the director's approach to the film. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you remember that opening, Get Carter, I mean, it just it sets the tone, the mood, the energy of the whole film. And But yeah, as you say, it's not, it doesn't appear in any great shape or form after that. All the energy is front-loaded into that opening bit that's going to be what, what, what happens next, musically. And also with, with the Morricone, you know, the kind of noises that he was creating informs the whole landscape and feel of the film so that you don't actually have to have big musical moments Throughout the film, you, you, it can just be a sound that he then uses, which goes back to that economy. Um, and I think that's a key to the influence of soundtracks on bands like Porter's Head or whatever, on, on everyone these days. Because film music can be very subtle. It can be minimal, subtle, a suggestion rather than a banging you over the head mm. kind of uh, you know, cue as to how you're meant to feel. You could say it's a response to... I don't know, the oldness of popular music in the, in, in the sense that so much feels used up. It's difficult to create something that sounds new. So I think you go back to subtlety, you go back to the indefinite, to the, the evocative, rather than always looking to make a definite musical statement through your verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight kind of approach yeah. to the pop song. Even you could look at someone like Rumour, couldn't you, the, the female singer? You could look at the influence of film music in immediately offering an aesthetic that's not tied up with the obvious, that, that is trying to seduce rather than to, uh, to bang over the head the listener, yeah. to make them do a little bit of work and to evoke yeah. rather than to overemphasize. It's the suggestion, isn't it? And, and Morricone, I think, is the master of that in, in some of the spaghetti western ones. So going into March, we have a season of films here with uh, Michel Legrand and of course the great man himself is going to be here at the end of March and yeah. he'll, he'll be doing a talk at Watershed and then also a performance at St George's. Yeah, he's going to talk with the famous documentary filmmaker who's based in Bristol, Mark Cadell, and I think he's going to talk about uh, not only the film that you're going to show afterwards, which is The Go, the the go Between, again, an incredible, minimal score. There's very little music in the film, but it's what you remember as the, as the child runs from Alan Bates to Julie Christie carrying his messages. It's that kind of mock Baroque music that really uh, kind of defines the image of the film in many ways. So he's going to be talking about The Go Between and about his work generally, and he's, he's a very entertaining uh, interviewee. I've talked to him before. I'm sure he's got a lot of controversial things to say. And of course, like all gentlemen who you know are in their kind of approaching their ninth decade, he's going to be 80 about the time of the visit to Bristol. He gets slightly fed up with always focusing on the past, you know, yeah. and, and the umbrellas of Sherbrooke, yeah, yeah. particularly, which is, is such a huge kind of iconic. 
uh, film in France that he, I think he feels a bit a millstone around his neck. And he's continued to do, I mean, he had eight songs on Barbara Streisand's album of earlier this year. Mm. He's not a past force at all. Mm. But he'll be performing with his wife, in a duo with his wife, Catherine Michelle. She's a, a harpist who performs with the Paris Opera. And they do a, a kind of suite, really, a, a mini orchestral suite of him playing piano. He sings a little bit as well, talks to the audience and her playing harp. And they conjure up all these delicate orchestral effects from all the films. So that it's fantastic. It's like you are there. There is enough in the sonorities of the harp joined to those of the grand piano and the mm. presence of Legrand himself to really feel that you're getting kind of, you know, the, the master's greatest mm. hits. So you can find out more uh, information on filmmaker at stgeorges.co.uk and also at watershed.co.uk. Watershed are going to be publishing a lot more online. Some of the Bernard Herrmann interviews, uh, including interview with the composer Laurie Johnson talking about Bernard Herrmann. Adrian Utley, as I mentioned before, talking about Taxi Driver. We'll be publishing these online, as well as Phil and I have put together a top 10, as it were, of um, filmic-inspired and influenced films and scores. Uh, and we'll publish them online and people can contribute and argue with us as to whether they're the right ones or the wrong ones. But Phil, just wanted to talk to you about your 10 that you've picked. <laughs> Just talk us through some of the kind of highlights. Vertigo number one. Vertigo, Battle of Algiers. Yeah. Uh, Get Carter, yeah. which you've talked about. Lift the Scaffold. In Mood for Love. Yeah. Goodfellas. Mishima. Hannah B. and Touch of Evil. Well, um, I used to be a film studies lecturer, actually, at, at one point. So some of these films I, I kind of taught. And Battle of Algiers is one of my favourite films. And I would teach in some detail the sequence from Battle of Algiers when the hero, Ali, uh, who's going to be the, the main moral force of the film, it's his re-education from being a kind of petty thief into becoming a, a, a radical member of the liberation struggle that kind of takes you he's, he's your cipher the, the audience's kind of cipher in a way to take them through the film which is a very tough journey for a, a westerner to take because you're being asked to identify with the, the terrorism of the fln in algeria and there's a very famous scene in which a milk bar is blown up by terrorists absolute innocent civilians many women and children as in the the relocation are killed but the scene with ali the thief is very unusual because most of Morricone's music in the film, and what everyone remembers, is the title theme, which has got this martial snare drum rhythm, a bass guitar, very kind of thumpy bass guitar sound. And I can't remember whether it's, uh, it's horns or, or violins now, but that's the kind of the action theme for the, the, the title sequence. But this later sequence with Ali the Thief, it's very unusual because it uses an Arabic kind of panpipe motif, this repeated to us minimalism sounding now, repeated note on the flute. And then in the scene, Ali is kind of arrested for trying to steal fruit from a market and is, is taken away by the police. And as he's taken away, uh, Morricone, an Italian of course, Italy, a Roman Catholic country, brings in this almost kind of uh, the passion of St. Matthew, you know, kind of Baroque music that makes uh, Ali appear as if he's a kind of Christ figure, as if he's Christ being taken to Calvary with the crown of thorns. And it's an enormously kind of subtle use of music and also one that is key in the audience's response to the film because he's basically making this unprepossessing, illiterate, Algerian peasant thief 
into the hero of the film, that you're going to identify with the struggle for Algerian independence and, uh, and take the cause of the, uh, the Algerians against the French colonialists because you feel kinship with this character. And that's the music that's reinforcing or making that mm. association and identification for the audience. Mm. That's, mm, yeah. Completely. And what about Touch of Evil that you mentioned? Well, Touch of Evil is an absolutely fantastic score by Henry Mancini. Everyone remembers the opening scene of Touch of Evil, which is this three-minute-long kind of continuous yeah. crane shot. And it's set to a, a sleazy Latin mambo, um, a kind of jazz mambo uh, that Mancini wrote. And his, the studio band that Henry Mancini used for the recording of the music for Touch of Evil, it's 1958, the day, is this killer Hollywood uh, session musician band with a black sax player called Plaz Johnson, who played on Little Richard's records and all the early rock and roll things, and the famous jazz guitarist Barney Kessel, who also played on, on pop and West Coast kind of doo-wop hits from the 50s. After this amazing sequence with the Latin Mambo, at a number of points throughout the film, you get, as well as the kind of stings of uh, little pieces of music that'll lead you from one scene to another, you get quite a bit of rock and roll. You get some really kind of sleazy teenager. What's well, that energy, isn't it? That it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is energy and it's also uh, rule breaking, it's transgressive. Mm. There's a lesbian rocker in the film, isn't mm. there? And there's yeah. a leather jacketed gang who are yeah. kind of uh, torturing people and all the rest of it. It's quite a transgressive little film, but I think the use of music, again, as with. Herman's music for Vertigo. It's very, very difficult to imagine that film without, without the music or with different music. Yeah, I think the music yeah, yeah. is indistinguishable from the yeah. film. On my list, I, I was going to naturally lead off with Paris, Texas, mm. because for me that was probably one of my first viewing experiences where I felt the music as, as much as I felt the film. Mm. And the music really defined the, the feeling that the film was aiming for. And... That quote that could have said, uh, I thought was was perfect. That you know it was that flat sound, um, and there's a, a discordancy. But listening to it again, it, it's kind of like perfect imperfection. The, the film's about imperfection and Harry Dean Stanton characters lost, and then he's got to kind of address his own trauma of the past um, relationships with his family. <laughs> There's a kind of beauty and perfection in the bottleneck slide sound that Kuda gets. But if you listen to it, um, you can hear all the imperfections of what sounds like the bottleneck hitting mm. the guitar. You can actually feel the, hear the strings being as though they've been stretched. And whilst it gets that very elegant sound to it, a very beautiful, pure sound, there's also a very earthy blues sound that he goes into, which is that Dark as the Night, I think is the blues track that, that he uses. But I didn't choose that. You know, that's so iconic, you know. And so, um, but what I wanted to do in my list was sort of draw attention to the, the work that Kuder's done with the director, Walter Hill, and the amazing range of work that you probably wouldn't think about Kuder. Um, films like Johnny Handsome, The Long Riders, uh, Trespass, actually, which has got a great, very urban sound that, that Kuder creates. But I put in the soundtrack to Southern Comfort. really gets the atmosphere of this the swampy south through the music it creates the, the feel and the atmosphere through the music it, you feel that the southern grunginess or whatever it is that you feel with that 
So I wanted to focus on Kuder. And the other, uh, when I was thinking about it, I realised that the producer, Jack Nietzsche, had actually done a few of the scores of films that, that I was looking at, like The Hot Spot, mm-hmm. which, again, I remember watching that and thinking, that sounds like Miles Davis. That sounds like Taj Mahal. And then that sounds like John Lee Hooker. And then it was all three together. And again, they create this really brilliant, bluesy sound that really fits what's happening to Don Johnson as he's getting caught up in corruption in the small town, of course, directed by Dennis Hopper. So that was a couple. um, But also uh, one of the most intense screenings that I've seen was um, David Lynch's Lost Highway. And I think it was to do with the, 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 the images and also largely to do with the music, which, you know, brought together Trent Reznor um, from Nine Inch Nails and Angelo Badalamenti, who Lynch works with a lot. I don't think I've ever been so terrified by sound and by noise being used. So those, those scenes where Bill Pullman, the sax player, who's you're not quite sure what the hell is going on, but he walks into darkness in the corridor and there's just the sound... Not quite sure what's creating it, but it's, but it's this sound, and it was really terrifying experience that when you bring together image and sound, uh, music uh, can be created. The Rai Kudra examples you give, I think, are also extremely important in that they represent a total reaction against conventional Hollywood film music where there is no space. Everything is eaten up by the Elmer Bernstein kind of massive orchestra. Certainly in the 50s with Hollywood studio films, the viewer was not really left to interpret the images in any kind of personal way mm. because the, the score told you what to feel Absolutely, at, every, yeah. at every moment. Ry Cooder's score for... Paris, Texas, it, it score almost feels the wrong word for it. It's so kind of minimal. It creates acres of space in yeah. which your imagination can roam. It both suits the desert setting of the film, but also it's skeletal. Those bare wires are kind of skeletal in that they leave you to um, imagine the immense significance that the sort of blank presence of Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. is in that uh, if you had a much more uh, busy score with cues kind of telling you how to feel to, you know, to well, that's the thing, every it moment it wouldn't work. It doesn't tell you, it suggests mm. to you things, but it doesn't direct you in any particular way. As you say, it's like a lot of Hollywood soundtrack is reinforcing the message or the, you know, what, how you should be feeling. But there are some other events coming up as well as part of this. Um, Mark Kermode, known, um, I'm sure, to most as a film critic, but also increasingly as a musician, and he's going to be uh, performing at St George's. With his band, the Dodge Brothers, yeah. The initial idea was we were going to have the Dodge Brothers do their live soundtrack to a kind of classic um, silent film. And then we thought, oh, it's kind of done the rounds a couple of times. It would seem to be much more fun to have the band just play their set so we can actually see them rather than have them sitting in the dark. And that the connection with filmmakers, that he's a film critic, and that will do, really. They're a kind of skiffle band, if you like, skiffle, Americana, rockabilly, and they're being supported 
on the night by the Karavik sisters, who are these absolutely fantastic uh, bluegrass picking and fiddling twins from South Devon. And uh, the okay. Dodge brothers were really happy with that as a yeah. kind of support okay. for them. So the Dodge brothers and Karavik sisters is a kind of good time event. Thanks very much, Phil. Go to the websites, find out more about Filmmaker. It'll be running in February and March. And if you go online to watershed.co.uk forward slash filmic, um, then please contribute with some of the films and scores that you really appreciate. That's all for this month.